Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to another episode of the Storybox podcast, where I, your esteemed host, Jay Phantom, has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox amazing stories from incredible people twice a week. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the story box and hear more about our guest today. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode number 36 with Mick Tisdale, or better known as The Hungry Diner. Welcome back everyone to the story box. Hope you're all doing well. Today, everyone, I have a very special guest for you, my good friend, Mick Teasdale, or better known as The Hungry Diner on Instagram. He's also got a podcast called The Hungry Diner Show where he interviews people from the hospitality industry. And I was fortunate enough and privileged enough to play a small part in being interviewed and was able to share my story with his audience. And I really, really enjoyed it. He's quite a natural at it, I should say. Uh, This was actually technically meant to be Mick's first podcast, um, but we had to re-record the entire episode, but there's a reason for that. And today we were able to get a lot deeper into his story and what he actually went through, especially with this very important topic that we get deep uh, talking about actually, which is mental health. Okay, now this has been a recurring theme I know in, in the story box for the last couple of weeks, but it's very needful, it's very powerful, uh, and it needs to be shed light on, especially during this time with COVID-19, and there's been a lot of, inc- there's been an increase in domestic violence, you could say, and mental and physical abuse going on in relationships and friends and, and everything like that, and mental health is no joke. It's very real and there are people out there that do struggle with it on a day-to-day basis. And I want to let you guys know as well that you're not alone. And Mick and I actually share quite a bit in this episode. So I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Uh, now, to to get talking about what we actually get into on, on this episode, so we get to going from right to his backstory Uh, So going and doing so many different jobs, then moving to the Navy, then going and doing marketing, how he taught himself how to do that. It's quite a fascinating uh, turn of events as well. And then moving into the more serious stuff, which is the mental health side of things, okay? So um, I hope you guys really, really enjoy this. Now, Mick and I uh, formed a pretty good friendship over the last couple of months, and I just want to honor him and, and say how grateful and how fortunate I am to to have him in my life and, and to say just thank you for um, for everything that he's done. You know, he's just a huge support of the story box and, you know, if you need any advice or anything like that, you just go to him and he's more than happy to support you and, and help in whatever way he can. He's very kind, very generous, generous, very um, just, just giving, you could say. And an example of this would be, he didn't have to do this, but he did. He uh, contacted Mr. Wagyu Beef and, and organized the prime cut, the most expensive cut of Mr. Wagyu and had it delivered to my door for myself and my family to actually enjoy. And that's the kind of selfless attitude that Mick has and that needs to be publicized that this man goes over and above for people. And uh, just thank you so much, Mick. I can't say it enough. Uh, for you. I didn't even know what to say, <laughs> but thank you. You know, and sometimes I feel like thank you is being overused, but you, you can't say thank you enough to people. So don't forget that. Anyway, everyone, I hope you enjoy this episode with Mick Teasdale, the hungry diner. So let's dive into the story box and hear his story. 
All right, everyone. I right, welcome back to the Storybox podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my good friend Mick Tisdale to the Storybox. Now, Mick, you are the owner of the Hungry Diner and the Hungry Diner Show, which I've been a part of, and I'm super grateful for that. Mick, welcome so much to Storybox podcast once again, part round two, I should say. <laughs> dos, round dos. Jared is a pleasure. <laughs> Absolute pleasure to have you back, man. I apologize for the uh, the mix up with what actually happened. Uh, but, you know, they say round two is usually better than round one and the audio quality for you, my friend, is going to be much better than the other one. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really keen to, to get stuck into, I guess, some your backstory as well um, and then talk about some other exciting things that I guess we've been talking about off mic as well. Uh, but yeah, man, uh, so before we get stuck into, I guess, your backstory, you know what question is coming and, and that is my favorite question I love asking people, which is, what is your definition of success? Ooh, okay. So firstly, uh, my definition of success is to one day make it to the story box podcast. <laughs> <laughs> success, done. <laughs> He's made it. Yeah. Um, no, no, mate, buddy. I, I love the question and I love all the answers from your previous guests as well. Um, it's, as I said, in our um, first attempt and I blame my gear on my end for us doing this again, but all the things happen for a reason. Um, the answer I gave before, it's similar to the answer I'm going to give now, but I guess I've got an opportunity to maybe um, express it a little better with a bit of context. My definition excess, success sorry, is um, when you have the ability as a human being to think, act, and do in a completely selfless manner, okay? So what, that, what I'm talking is about is when you finally as an individual start to do things without expecting something in return, when you don't first think about what's, what do I have to gain from this, where you first want to serve before what am I, like, how does this benefit me? And this is something I'm still working on. So that is that kind of, I'm still chasing that. I'm still chasing that. And I think that if everybody in the, in the entire world, well, deep already, Jay, but everyone in the world would, would be able to follow that as a mantra or as part of their DNA or their belief system, it would be an, a lot, a lot easier place, especially now. So that is really my version two of definition of success because I feel that if I think and act that way and apply that to my family, my work, my life, how I get up in the morning, how I treat strangers, how I treat my friends, it, I will have a, a flourishing life in many ways. Money, spiritually, energy, fitness, health, everything. So, yeah, there's my answer. It all comes down to service, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where did that, yeah. where did that come from for you? Was it like an instantaneous moment that you sort of realize, okay, well, service is something that is going to make me successful one day or was it sort of a gradual thing over time that sort of made you realize it? It came from living um, uh, a, a very colorful life, as you can see from my colorful branded shirt that I've got on right now. I got it this time too. Last time I didn't have it. <laughs> nice, man. Your self-promotion. I love it. I'm promoting something completely different than what I should be promoting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll get a story box for it. Um, yeah, I need to get one, honestly. But you mentioned there for a moment a colorful life. Would, would you be able to explain and elaborate a little bit more about what you mean? By that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit of a brat through high school. Whenever mom and dad said, don't do something, I'd do that immediately. Um, uh, self-sabotaging, self-serving. I uh, didn't take life very seriously through high school. Um, and then straight out of high school, you know, I was just like, um, didn't finish my HSC. I uh, actually developed, uh, I got, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, not pneumonia, the other one. Um, uh, I got a, I got a particular, uh, well, I can't even think of the name. I'm a bit mind blocked now, but as a result of what I'd caught and I was out of year 12, out of school for three months, I also developed chronic fatigue as well. Mm -hmm. So I took the lazy approach out and had the opportunity to go back to school and ended up um, cutting that short and didn't finish my HSC and straight out of high school, I was just like, okay, great. How can I, how can I earn money and how can I do it in a fun way? And, I just job jumped from job to job. Like I'm talking Target, Tandy Electronics, the local chicken shop down the street, 
then I was like, this isn't fun. So I started working in bars and pubs so I could chase girls and I could party. I was doing a lot of self, um, self-serving things. I worked in a couple of like, like we talked about last time, like I worked in a couple of nightclubs out in the Hills district, Patrick's at Pennant Hills, um, Tracks nightclub at Epping. And um, yeah, just there was real no direction for me. So there was, it was all about what I could do. What was the funnest thing to do? Being the funny guy, being the social guy um, and really lacked in a sense of uh, direction. And um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really, I guess, where it all started. And then from that point on, I guess, lacking that structure, I, um, I, uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I'd spent a whole life being surrounded by hospitality with my, my mother being a waitress at a West restaurant in Penna Hills called the Black Stump Restaurant. And because she worked nights and I, I'm the eldest of a family of seven, um, I would have to do a lot of the cooking at home. So therefore, I was kind of forced how to learn about food, cooking at a very early age through school. I was cooking for my younger brothers and sisters, but also I was visiting the restaurant. So I was very comfortable being in a venue, knowing the difference between a waiter, a barman and a cook and a chef. I'd hear all the different stories. So, um, you know, that hospitality stuff kind of came in early, but again, none of it was really making any sense to me. So I decided to join the um, uh, TAFE to do a hospitality course. Um, and within that hospitality course, I was six six to seven months into the course. Um, and like, obviously it's a bit weird, Jay, you and I have discussed this before, but it's a lot better that it's clearer for our listeners. Mm. But six to seven months into that course, Finishing part of that course, I had to get experience working for hospitality to complete the course itself. So have a few months working and you could either be a chef, you could be a waiter, or you could be a bartender at a venue that was close. And this particular TAFE I was at was in Ride. Um, and the, f- the restaurant I chose to work at um, was, yeah, the very first Cronides in Parramatta as a waiter. And that first day... I worked at that venue as a waiter. My role was simply to take orders. Um, There were no POS systems to actually add the orders into the system. You had to write it all on paper. That paper would go straight onto the line in the chef's kitchen and they would put out the dishes to the tables. And I was just horrendous. So absolutely horrendous. Um, My handwriting is just atrocious. I should never have been given my pen license. And then from there... Did you have to get your pen license at school? I did, yes. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. I don't know how I... Me, don't worry. Like, it took yeah. me like, years. I think I was in year eight or year nine before I got it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it was, I was that bad. Like there, there was a requirement that it was a cutoff period. So like if you, if you transitioned into high school, you needed to get your pen license. But I think that I was so accustomed to using pencil and rubbing things out because I was so like... Yeah. My brain was so focused on other things that... I ended up waiting a long period of time before I actually got it. So I understand, man. <laughs> Mate, you win. I think I got mine in you four, but I think the teachers didn't care. It, I, it sounds like you had an honest teacher. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so, so swinging back around, my first shift, I mean, the very first Cronides on, on sorry, Church Street in Parramatta, their very first restaurant at the time, I think it was around 2002, one, I can't remember. And I was just hopeless. I was getting it all wrong. It wasn't flowing. I was getting orders wrong. They couldn't understand my handwriting. I was delivering dishes to the wrong table. I could notice the kitchen staff getting progressively angrier throughout the night. And then it got to the point where I think I put the wrong dish on the wrong table. I was dropping some plates. And that's when the head chef came out and exact words, as I said last time, ripped my head off in front of all patrons, all staff, everyone in the entire venue. Um... I, I, you know, where there's moments you don't forget like that. I don't forget that shame, that embarrassment, that betray. Like I felt I was betrayed by a staff member. Like I believe that you should reprimand in private and praise in public. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a golden rule. And from there, Jay, I pretended to walk out the back to go to the bathroom and that's, I never walked back. I quit that night. I'd stopped the hospitality course, never completed it. I turned my back on the whole hospitality industry. So the bartending experience, being a glassy, working in a nightclub, you know, my mum being a waitress at, um, which she's definitely not now. She's a very successful corporal woman, shout out mama. And, um, 
yeah. And then that was it. So from, from turning my back to the hospitality industry, thinking that I'd finally found a bit of structure and something I wanted to do, I went straight, did a 360 and I joined the Royal Australian Navy. Mm. Yeah. We spoke yeah. about that a little bit last time and I don't think I asked you this last mm. time, but did you ever think to yourself, Mick, I'm a, I'm a quitter. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Life's not working for me at all. Did those thoughts ever come across your mind? At that stage in life? Yes. No. They, I mean, well, hold on. Uh, actually, hold on. Yeah, they did. I'm a quitter. Yeah, a lot, a lot. So I wouldn't see it back then as being a quitter. I would just see it as, eh, I'll find something else. I don't need to be accountable. I don't need to be responsible. There's lots of things out there. I don't care what people think. You know, if I'm okay with it, then everyone else is going to be fine with it. So you see that kind of pattern of thinking that I had? That self-sabotage, that um, the shortcuts, the you're not accountable for the decisions you make. I'm only young. It doesn't matter. I don't have to face responsibility yet. These are all the things that can set you back later when it comes time to the hard work you would have done previous in your early years. Now this is where it gets easier for you. So for me, I was really pushing the responsibility to later in life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where do you think that, that attitude or that mindset came from? For you, because you mentioned like it started from a very early age. You weren't that good in school. Was it sort of that being a product of your environment, you reckon? Or what What sort of caused that mindset? I don't know. I don't know. Like um, being the eldest of a family at the time of a family of four, um, you know, having a it, was a, it was a very, very family orientated, close house. So like, you know, the dynamics that we had were very similar to any other family. You know, at the, at the, you know we... we we weren't rich, but we weren't like really poor. We were kind of in the middle. Um, you know, I didn't have the best clothes. At the same time, we always we always um, had an education to go to. I just don't know. I think it was really there was no particular defining factor. It was just it was just me at the time. Um, I was super social. I always had a, like a you know a, a large group of friends, and it was always about guys approve of me. Uh, can I say, can, I want to be the funny guy. I want girls to notice me. Like, these are not the things that should be my, what I'm chasing. This shouldn't be the benchmark of what I'm going for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know the root of it yet. I'm still learning. I'm still a work in progress, Jay. So um, yeah, but uh, I tell you what, the Navy kicked that right out of me. So I was very, very happy um, to have made that decision. And that was something I owed to my uncle. Um, I had an uncle who was an officer in the Navy and he was someone I looked up to. So made the decision to then head in the direction of the Defence Force, joined uh, HMAS Melbourne uh, on a fast uh, frigate, frigate, sorry, fast frigate. And um, yeah, was on was in the Navy for, for quite a few years. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you this as well, but for a young person that is struggling with a similar thing that you did, you know, they're not really interested in school. They've got all these societal pressures as well, trying to fit in, trying to sort of look for their purpose in life as well. What, what would you say? What would you recommend to them? For those that say that again for me, Jay. So for those people that are going through a similar thing that you did in terms of finding their purpose, just not interested in school, chasing the wrong things. What would you say to them from your experience being a lot more wiser now? What would you say to them? So my, my advice to people like that right now, especially in our day and age with the technology that we have and the information that is out there for free on multiple platforms, the first thing you need to do is look at what flows for you? So what do you actually enjoy doing? What, what is, what's easy for you? For some people, it might be doing mathematics. For some people, it might be reading and writing. For others, it might be music. For others, it might just be listening to people. Okay, great. Where and how could you possibly make money from that? As stress-free as possible to a level of learning and information receiving that suits your learning style. Everyone's coachable in a different way at a different point in life. Some people just don't want to hear it. Other people are ready, but they don't have the tools or the direction. So I'd say every individual is different, but they are, I think people of the age I was then and the information that lacked back then and the resources that lacked, I used to have to get a library card and check it in and get the bus to the library with no mobile phone 
If I wanted to make a phone call, I'd have to put money into a machine on the side of the road and call whoever it was. Now, the available information and technology we have, all you simply need is a phone. You can sign up to a course. For example, there's a course online which is freely available for everyone called Masterclass. I don't know if anyone has seen it, but it's a monthly subscription and it's the some of the best minds in the world share lessons that can help you for a simple subscription. And I'm not talking about a, a hex debt. I'm talking 25 bucks a month, like simple things. And I would say to them, just be like, look for, look for a mentor, look for someone that appeals to you. Like I did for my uncle who was in the Navy, because without him, I wouldn't have joined. And if I didn't join, I would never have found that true respect for structure and consistency and what you get when you earn that over a period of time. So um, long answer, drawn out many directions, but that's, I would just say, use what's there and ask questions, natural curiosity. Mm, that's good, man. What did your uncle say to you that made you want to go into the Navy? Ooh, honestly, he just looked cool when he did like the Christmas gatherings or the family gatherings and he'd come and he's just like this guy with a couple of tattoos, all cool with his glasses and just a young together guy, just had that aura about him. And like, yeah. And I, when I found out he was an officer in the Navy, I always asked him a lot of questions. He was always very respectful. Um, he actually wrote me a letter of recommendation for when I first went to join to get in because I actually didn't pass the first test uh, from a knee injury and um, got the letter of recommendation from him. And because of him, I actually joined. And then from that, that that's where that I started to really grow that muscle and lose that, try to lose that, uh, those self-sabotaging ways, maybe they're self-serving ways. And like, you don't have much room for error when you're in the, when you're in the defense force, there, there are, there are rules and guidelines you must follow if you're representing the country within your rank and rate. So because you had gone through, I guess this, I guess you could say a period of your life where you just kept changing from career to career, what made you stay in the Navy? I stayed for the minimum amount that they allowed. So the minimum amount of what I did, was, which was called a CSO, which is a combat systems operator, I was reporting ships and airplane to the navigator, the watch in the control room and to the captain. Mm. I did that as well as um, a few other roles on the ship. And after five years of doing that, the next, the, sorry, it was four and a bit at the time. The next option you have is join for another five. So 10 years you have to commit. And they, there was always a saying, if you do 10 years, you're going to become what's called a lifer. I did not in my core believe I'd be a lifer in the Navy. I just didn't see it. I knew that it was part of my journey. I knew there were tools I could apply later on. So when I parted from the Navy, I went, I did a lot of learning in the last year of being in the Defence Force. Our ship was alongside, which means my ship HMS Melbourne is parked at Watson's Bay alongside. And every day I'd come to work and it's either cleaning, boring tasks, in the galley, in the kitchen. I was always in the kitchen, not surprised. And um, I, I, from there, I was able to do what's called long-distance learning. So long-distance learning means um, they will actually pay for you to do different courses online. So I was doing marketing courses, sales courses. As I told you last time, I bought all the cassettes from the and CDs from the Tony Robbins series. I was reading books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like I'd never really done personal development before, but I knew that when I found out that being a combat systems operator in the Royal Australian Navy translated nothing into civilian world, I had to make a decision. And for that year, I consumed as much information as I could so I could go straight into the corporate world and start building a career at the age of around tw uh, 24, 25 was when I left and started uh, my career in, uh, in advertising. And what was one thing that the Navy sort of taught you, one lesson you could say that sort of sticks out to you to this day? Wake up make your bed, structure and consistency, structure and consistency. Why is that important? That, sorry? Why is that important? Um, it sets you up for whatever you've got going on that day. You can break down your week. You can break down your month. I can't stand when someone says, what's your five-year plan? I say to them, what's your plan today? Like, like let's be honest. 
look at 2020. Look what's happened. This year is a disaster. And I don't mean to be negative because I see the positive in everything and I do my best to try and see the positive. But it has been a disaster and it's going to be testing for everyone. So Miles, what, what can I do today? I'll tell you the first thing I do, I don't get up and check the news. I tell you what I don't do at the end of the day. I don't get up and I don't, sorry, I don't come home and watch the news. The only kind of news that I'll take, I'll actually take in for me personally is the project because they have a good balance of positive and negative, inspiring stuff, comical stuff, and a bit of the serious stuff. So I, for me personally, who goes through and balances um, uh, a struggle with anxiety, I can only deal with it in certain doses. So for that, for me, that's, that's, Structure is important. So what do I do to fuel my day? I get up, I make the bed, I have my morning routine. If I can at the moment, uh, as I said last time, I ride my bike around Brookvale Oval while the oval's closed, try and get the blood flowing, clear my mind, and then I start that day on that structure. And if I can do that consistently over time, then I can I can go through my day and tackle whatever versus rolling out of bed, heavy feet, what's going on? checking Instagram, like that's not, that doesn't work for me. So, yeah. Mm. You mentioned there a little bit of anxiety and I'm curious to know where that actually came from because not everyone wakes up one day with anxiety. It's sort of something either sparks it or there's an event in their, in their life that sort of brings them to that, that stage of being anxious. And I read the other day, you know, there's a difference between being anxious and stressed. And it's quite an interesting uh, combination, actually, and the difference is quite unique. So um, I'm curious to know as well, before we dive into the difference between being stressed and anxious, where did the anxiousness come from? <laughs> it's funny because, like, for me, stress, stress breeds anxiety. Yes, uh, yeah. It depends on like how much you can oh, handle. So yeah, it's like imagine being stung by a bee and then imagine being stung by 50. It's a very different thing. So um, that that's how I see it. I, I, feel, I feel stress is one of many factors that breeds anxiety. I feel diet. I feel exercise. Now, I'm not saying that I am physically fit human being. I'm not saying I eat perfectly. I am the hungry diner. My role is to eat food <laughs> constantly and always be out, but that's okay. But there is, I have found a balance. I have found a balance. Um, but you know, there are things that can reduce anxiety and a lot of those things don't just come down to medication. And that's something I'm very, very, very strong on. I know we're going to touch on this today. Um, and you know, you, you already know Hungry Diner was born out of anxiety and out of hard times, but, uh, stress is a factor. And if you can, if you, some people say stress is a good thing. Like I had an old, very successful entrepreneur that I worked for, uh, Nick Bell. Had an agency here in Sydney, brought me from, a, I worked at a bunch of agencies from traditional uh, print media, radio, then online marketing for years. He financially backed me to work in Sydney, start my own agency and office there, then in Hong Kong for a few years. And like that guy loved stress. He said, pressure builds diamonds. That doesn't work for my, my core. That doesn't work for me. I don't mind stress. Like I can deal with a lot, but I need to break things down into manageable tasks, find a solution, find someone that's smarter than me to deal with it. But at the same time, everyone's different. And for me, too much stress can really, really be unhealthy for an individual. So there are yeah. some people out there that are crazy in the, in the sense that they can handle stress and anxiety and pressures quite well. And it, it's, it goes, like you said, it goes towards the person and what their brain is capable of and how strong they actually are. Because yeah. oftentimes, you know, when, when we experience like a loss, that breeds uh, stress. Uh, you're not going to see them again, so therefore you're stressing about that. And there's so many stresses, so many worries, so many fears that come in our life day in and day out. And it really affects our mental state. And it really affects our our gut as well, how we feel. Like I know if if you say, for instance, as an example, like if you ask a, a girl out on a date and you they, you don't hear a response for a while. Now I'm not recommending that you ask a girl out via text message. That's that's not it at all. But you're constantly feeling in, in the pit of your stomach. Oh, is this girl going to say yes or no? 
And then your body starts sort of clenching up. It's almost like that fight or flight syndrome. Your body's trying to protect yeah. itself almost, but then it's yeah. not reacting to it. It's more reacting internally, which then builds up all these chemical imbalances into your body, which then turns your, your action. So you might feel a bit jittery. You might like mm. your brain's not focused as much. And I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned that the hungry diner was really born out of being anxious and being in that sort of space. You know, why, why the hungry diner? Why did you want to go down that road? Good segue, Jay. <laughs> I'm so happy to be talking about this. Um, like this is the, for the listeners, this is the important part that I wanted to share. And, I, and the, first, the first attempt at doing this podcast with Jay, unfortunately, um, I, I didn't have the, the best headset. So this is something that we accidentally touched on. I had not prepared or even considered sharing this with anyone. Um, me and Jay spoke yesterday on the phone and I said, I, I, me and him both actually were going, alluding to the same thing. Let, let's talk about this again. Let's share it. But I'm more than happy to. And before, before I do, as you can see, this entire podcast, I've been using this fidget spinner that's in my hand right now. It's in my hand right now, which is uh, from Kaiko, 11-year-old kid with autism. Mm. And, um, and he has made these himself. I've actually got a whole packet of them. And this is just a small thing that helps me deal with anything that would create or potentially trigger any kind of anxiety. Um, so shout out to Kaiko Fidgets. I hope you don't mind me doing that, Jay. Of course not. Um, and I love them. Wish I could get some. <laughs> yeah, mate. I'll arrange it. I'll arrange it. The sensory fidgets, um, they help everything, buddy, from leg ticks to, to quitting smoking to overthinking to everything. They're amazing. Wow. He makes them all out of bike chains. Um, look, the end of the story is this, Hungry Diner, the domain name, hungrydiner.com.au, was registered on Crazy Domains from Prince Alfred Hospital in my hospital bed on my fourth attempt at suicide in 2018. So that's the end of the story. So that's kind of where Hungry Diner began as a result of, I know that I'm getting out. I've got to find something that's going to scratch a creative itch. And it's going to join two things I love all in once, which was a 15 years experience in online marketing, predominantly in hospitality, a world of having hospitality in my family and the fact that I love food. So that's where it was born. What actually got me to the point where I was at hospitalized a fourth time was uh, in early 2018, sorry, mid 2018, uh, there was a, I guess a lot of events happening in my personal life and at work that were exposing me to say a high velocity of stress. And from that high velocity of stress to something I hadn't really experienced before and was maybe uh, battling on my own, um, it, it produced a level of anxiety I'd, I'd never, never, never experienced. And then from that, as a result, for the first time in my life ever, as a 37-year-old, I fell into a deep depression. So, um, and what I'm talking about, just to be clear to anyone that's listening that has ever, ever felt this way or know someone like that spark was going, you know, that, that social guy, that energy, that light had dimmed. I was watching it disappear. I was tired. Like I was a burden on everyone. I doubted my ability to, to do anything that any normal person could do. Um, so from there, once I'd really kind of gone up. Oh, I'm not me anymore. My family and my support circle and my partner suggested I go see a general practitioner um, to see what they think, get some advice. Um, what's going on with me is not right. I was hiding it well at work, but I didn't want to get up. I just, I wasn't me. Um, the doctor, after a very quick Q&A session, prescribed me to the following medications. Number one, fluoxetine. Number two, diazepam, number three, beta blockers. Now, I, now, the one thing I did prepare for this is I want everyone to understand what fluoxetine is, okay? Mm -hmm. So fluoxetine, okay, first off, once I Googled it, is a basically sold under the name of Prozac, okay? It's an antidepressant, and what it does is it reduces your serotonin level, so it stops you from feeling happy. That's the first thing. Next thing is diazepam, which is Valium, which is a relaxant. The other thing is beta blockers, which is something that's to reduce my heart rate. Now, imagine all three of those things in your body at once. Okay. So 
Yeah, I was a walking zombie. Now I was subscribed to those things. And what's even what's even crazier is I've got this article here, right? which is an important warning about fluoxetine, which is an FDA warning for suicidal thoughts and actions. This drug has a black box warning. Fluoxetine can increase the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior, especially high risk in children, adolescents, and adults. That's pretty much everyone, right? The risk is higher during the first few months of treatment with this drug. Or other warnings, serotonin syndrome warnings, mania warnings. This drug may cause mania. So this is all stuff I didn't know at the time. So as a result of the medication, this was, I got what's called a slow release medication. Are you cool if I just keep going with this, Jay? Yeah. So as a result, I had the slow release. So it took a few weeks to take effect. So I was combining the dose of all three. And then like once it kicked in, I knew I was having extreme hits of anxiety. I'm talking they would last hours. These attacks would happen at any time during the day. It would burn my skin, my chest. It would go through my arms. It would go into my fingers. Um, these were like man, things that were usually easy for me were hard. Like getting on the bus to work was a huge ordeal for me. You know, who's going to be on the bus? Are they going to be looking at me? Where do I sit? What are they thinking? That's not me. Like you've met me. I'm a social guy. Like I, I was not myself. Um, going to an ATM was such a big deal to me. Like go, walking into the office at the beginning of the day of work, it was, I was very good at masking it. And my job at the time had no idea that I was going through this, but I, Jay, I really felt like I was losing the ability to be me and I was not going to be able to come back, which was the scariest part. So I was not getting any better. So then I went back to the GP. What did the GP do? They doubled my dose. So at the time I thought, okay, they must be, they must know what they're doing. Like there has to be a point, maybe my body's adjusting and there's going to be a light at the end of this tunnel. Within a week, this would literally change my life forever. I was riddled with this drug fluoxetine paired with Valium and beta blockers. I was basically, uh, I didn't feel happiness. I didn't feel sadness. I was always relaxed from the Valium and my heart rate was always low. So I was just this walking, walking zombie. Um, basically, I guess a few things to make clear is I was also experiencing episodes of psychosis at this time. So, um, at certain points I, I, I was hearing and seeing certain things. And so what I did was I tried to numb that with alcohol, which is just nuclear, absolutely nuclear. Um, I started developing nervous tics as well. So never had that before. So nervous tics where I was uh, a small thought or scenario would play out in my head, usually that I wouldn't think of when I was me, the normal me. And then these tics and jolts would happen. And sometimes in public, like, 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 you know, like there's just all of a sudden, so, um, and this is then what I found later, again, once I did all my research, psychosis may occur as a result of, of psychiatric illness in other instances may be caused by medication or drug use. So this was built up over time and this stuff was in my system. So I talked about the warnings that had happened, but basically from there, from the ticks, I continued with the medication. I was trusting the process. And that's when the passive and active suicidal ideations started appearing to me. Um, and they were appearing more and more frequently. And just to be clear what the difference is, passive suicidal ideations occur when you like you wish you weren't around, you wish that you could kind of end it, but you don't actually have the ability to do it. As Tony Robbins would say, like you're a big pussy, you can't even do this. Like that's his kind of way of breaking that trend and snapping you out of it to then try and deal with you. But active suicidal relations, on the other hand, are where you're actually planning it and you have an intention to go ahead. Um, so within four weeks of the double, the dosage being doubled, um, I was, I was without going into details, I was hospitalized uh, four times. So, um, and my partner and I were all affected by this. My family was all affected by this. Um, again, without going into any personal details of that, it was a hard time on all of us. And as my mum says, Absolutely. Most importantly, it was hard on me. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, 
I put them all through a lot during that particular time. And I just want to say now on your platform, that I'm forever grateful for my family and my partner for having to watch the eldest and their partner go through this. I do feel for my family. I have a lot of grief for some stages that they had to watch and experience. I do feel that it may have even brought on some trauma for, trauma for them, for what they had to watch and see. Um, but without it, I wouldn't be where I am today on the on the podcast with you, buddy. So um, that was that was what I went through. So that's kind of the catalyst. Um, and then, yeah. Mm. So the question is really, where do you go to from that? And it was interesting. It's it a, was interesting, Jay. Like um, I knew we were going to go deep. I love this, um, uh, buddy. It's yeah, man. Like it's it's a very it's a very needful topic, and I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. I know, I know it's a very deeper and I know it affected quite a few people in your life as well. And I won't ask, yeah. you know, anything about that, but I, what I, what I do, what I am curious about is why was it the medication that made you want to become actively involved in wanting to kill yourself or yeah. your own thoughts? No, it was, it was the medication. So it was the medication. So I suffer from depression, from extreme anxiety. Um, from there, it should have been, you know, um, let's go see someone. Let's get some healthy exercise. Let's get your diet right. Let's sleep well. Let's talk about like what make, what's making you feel that way. And through consistent and structure, let's get you back to getting that machine going, back to the guy he was mm-hmm. versus drive to the GP, prescribe to this stuff that clearly says has mania, serotonin syndrome, and suicidal warnings, pair that with not feeling anything, and then pair that with having a low blood pressure, and then do that for two months. And continue drinking and continue eating whatever you want. Like, so, This this is the thing that I want to point out. The doctor would have known exactly, exactly what was in all those medications, yet he decided to give it to you anyway. Yeah. Yeah, massive, massive thing to look at and think, why did he give it to you if he knew all this stuff was going, if he knew the results that these medications were going to have? Mm. Mm. It's so, it's so, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. It it just makes me, it just boggles my mind to think that a doctor that is meant to be looking out for your health, first and foremost, they take an oath for that. Yeah. Prescribed you a drug, and I think it was like an easy cop out. Yeah, say, get you in, get you out. It's a numbers get thing. Out. Next, next person, let's go. It's easy for them to just prescribe drugs because then the drug company that is the one that that sold it to them makes money. The doctor makes money, and it's just a quick and easy yeah. fix. Yeah, but yeah. Mental health is so much more than just taking drugs. Exactly. It makes it so much worse oftentimes, and this is what I've seen now. I'm going to relate to the depression aspect because when I was 14, uh, I, I was, I was dating this, this girl who was, uh, it was very, very emotionally abusive, you could say. And I, she was, she was cutting herself. I was exposed to that at 14 and no 14 year old should ever have to go through or see that sort of stuff. It, it does damage to your brain. And I, I was trying my best even back then, Mick, I wanted to help. Like that's mm. all I wanted to do, but I couldn't help. You know, I, I you just be on Skype or whatever and you just see her like just sorry to paint a, a vivid picture for people, but it's it's very yeah. real. And yeah. people are masking it. I mean, I was good for a short period of time with masking it, but eventually I caved and eventually people started to see it. And mm. So you can try and fool other people, but the, the one person you can't fool is yourself. Yeah. And that's why mental health is such an important thing because if you are struggling with any form of anxiety, stress, depressed thoughts, or feelings of worry, doubt, fear, you name it, that is causing you any amount of thought of going further in, in, in not wanting to be here, Seriously, yeah. go, don't go see a doctor, go see somebody, talk to your, your best friend, someone that you can trust because it's very, very needful. And for you, Mick, I'm curious, what, what were some of the things that you were doing to sort of mask your pain to others? I'm very, very good at smiling. 
I'm very, very good at deflecting with humor. I am very, very good at um, what you call the Kansas City shuffle. Everyone look left and then I look right. So that was that was a good thing. And like um, I was very good at doing that. I come from a very social family, a very happy, positive, you know, like my family, the sweetest people. Um, I have a great partner as well. And it's just very, very easy that it's just like I, I practice that muscle. So if I had to turn it on, but even though if it wasn't sincere, I could turn it on. Um, and secondly, um, you know, that sometimes the back then during the early stages of that depression in 2018, what would um, cure the kind of thoughts of like, like I was at that point where I'm, you know, in my mid thirties, like I'm comparing myself to other friends. I'd, I'd um, you know, I'd really lost a big distance between some of my friends in high school and I'm, I'm seeing all them and I'm going, why, how come I'm not that, at that stage? And it's those kind of comparison thoughts that were, were leading to that way along with the anxiety, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 look. Not everyone's prepared for it, but the thing is, like, if it ha- it doesn't, it happens to it can happen to anyone at any time. It can happen before you're ten, in your in your teens, in your twenties, in your thirties, later in life. Like, it doesn't matter. But the beauty of it now is the healing process and the resources you have available. And my healing process was beautiful behind it all. I've learned more about myself than I have. At any point in my life, I've learned. I know, and I'm not saying that I've completely, completely um, follow what I, I know what's right for me every now and then. I do have slip ups, and you know, I will drink too much sometimes, or I might just eat a lot of unhealthy food. It's just part of my craft at the moment. But like, there are resources there, like you know, Beyond Blue, Black Dog, Headspace, um, Survivors of Mates and Support Network. Just you put it. You can put in a couple of triggered keywords into Google. And they, they will pop up there and there are there are people that are ready to answer the phone. They will follow you up on email. Um, it is free. There is articles everywhere. And not just that, everyone should have a support circle around them and just speak up because I can proudly say I faced what I needed to face, but I didn't do it alone. My family, again, as I said, I won't go into the details, but I know what they had, what they saw, what they had to go through. And I have to wear that guilt. But at the same time, like they're the ones that helped me get through that. And when I say my family, I'm talking about my direct family, my partner, and also my close friends that were around at the time that may have seen certain things. And they're the ones that have helped me accept what I need to accept. I'm happy with the person that you're speaking to now. I wear it as a badge. It's a tool for me now. It motivates me. It drives me. Like I kind of even look at it sometimes as a, as a gift, Jay. Like it's a gift that I've been given. And I've already had to use this gift a few times since 2018 to help a few other people. Um, and it, that, that, that moment was really gratifying. It gave me a sense of purpose. Um, so, yeah. And also I want to add there as well, you know, it seems to be that when you are depressed, you're almost in denial. You put those support networks aside all the time. You know, I went through that as well. I didn't believe that I needed help. And I remember going and seeing my mum wanted me to go and see a counsellor. And so I did this beautiful, beautiful lady inside and out. Honestly, she was just remarkable. Yeah. Remember sitting down in in that room, and she looks at me and she's like, "You're not depressed, are you?" And I said to her, "No." She's like, well, "It's a uh, it's a woman, isn't it?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> and I'm like, "How did you know that?" She's like, "It's written all over your face." I said, "All I needed to do was just look at your countenance, and then put two and two together." I said, "She's like." because I'm not very good at, at, at masking my, my facial expressions. I'm a very expressionate sort of being. Yeah. Same, same, same. Then, then again, you know, there's always something deeper and she was able to get to that. And she made me feel comfortable enough to share it without judging me. And I think oftentimes when you've got this, this, it's a lot of the time it's in the mind. Like you feel like people are judging you for, for the way that you are. And then that comparison almost comes in as well. You compare yourself to someone that might be better than you and that makes you feel even worse. That's Plus, toxic. It's, it's toxic. And then That's especially so- with, with the male so- association as well, I want to touch on this as well. Toxic masculinity is, it needs to be. Hallelujah, mate. Hallelujah to that phrase. Seriously. Yeah. 
there's a reason why it's called toxic mas- masculinity. See, for men, we're bred, we're, we're born with this innate sense that we need to be this macho guy. We're not allowed to show any emotion. We're not allowed to talk to anyone about our feelings because that is wrong or it's perceived as being uh, female-oriented. And that causes us more shame, more grief than it does help anyone for that fact. You know, when you look at some of the, like the conditioning of like my grandfather, you know, he was a very kind, wise and, and helpful man. I mean, but he wasn't the sort of person to not open up to anyone, mm. which I, I think is, is fine as well because that worked for him. But some people it might not. And I just want to say as well that if you are a, a guy that is struggling with figuring out, I guess, his his place in society right now about being a man and how to become a man, don't be afraid to reach out, honestly, because I'm more than happy to help. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm only young, but I was taught from a very early age what it means to actually be a man. And having gone through vast amounts of different experiences that have taught me all about, okay, this is what, this is what to avoid and this is what to look for. This is what to go towards. This is who to become and this is who not to become. So if mm. you are struggling in any shape or form, I, I just encourage you, you know, I'm not telling you, I'm encouraging you. There's a difference between me telling you and encouraging. And I just want to say that because it's very, very needful. I mean, I didn't want to touch on this, Mick, but I will. No, do it, mate. There's a good friend of mine that passed away on the 30th of, of May. We went to school together from year five all the way to we finished in 2015. So a good 13 or 10, 10 years almost. Um, if I'm getting the math wrong, I apologize for you mathematicians out there, but I'm not good at it. I failed math. But anyway, um, she, unfortunately, you never know this can happen to someone that you care about, someone that you are close to. And that is important to know about mental health. It's such a prevalent issue because she she didn't wake up one morning thinking that the, today was going to be her last day. She didn't know she was going to be a, a victim of a mental abuse and domestic violence case. Yeah. She did not know that. Yet she was. Because someone, a guy, a boy, not a man, a boy decided to snap because he did not get help. He didn't he deal with it. He didn't deal with what was going on in here. And that's what people need to understand. If you, if you really know that something deep down inside, you get to the core of the person, you dig deep and you ask, start asking yourself the hard questions. Okay, why am I feeling this way? Why am I actually here in the first place? What's my purpose? If you can't answer those questions, search it out and don't be afraid to search it out. And that's, no. that's, that's, that's the main thing because I don't want to have to go through the exact same pain that I had to go through on Saturday. It's, it's a shock to the system. It shouldn't happen. Men, especially, I speak to you, do not, and I repeat, do not lash out. Don't. And same, same for women as well. There's oftentimes there's a stereotype revolving around how men are the ones that are always being the abusive figure but that's not true well, there's different types of abuse as well different types man exactly right so the reason why i wanted to say this was i, I told you before i wanted to touch on it because it yeah. needs it needs to be addressed because if we don't change or try and address address the change then it won't actually change yeah. so you, your story mick is a spark for change and i appreciate that about you I, I hope it. I hope it helps. Um, I have no shame. I, as I said about explaining, uh, talking about this. I also want to pass on. You and I talked about this on the phone yesterday about your situation. Uh, I think it was the day before about your situation. So my condolences to to you and then their family, which is such a serious, serious topic. And as I said on the phone, like these are these are happening everywhere. And I was actually taking notes, Jay, just trying not to type loudly while you were saying that because, like. The takeaways that I have, um, a few things. Um, I'd say the number one 
in terms of toxic masculinity, the number one thing that feeds that is ego. Oh yeah. Right. So ego, there's, there's two types of people, right? Those that react. So I'm talking about men. I'm talking about men because I don't want to, I don't want anyone to go through what I had to go through because it's not just me going through it. It was the family. It it, it reacted and imploded everywhere. There are two types where something happens and you've got the guy that's like, he'll speak up, he'll feel it, he'll be angry, he'll be sad, he'll be happy. There's those guys. It's the ones that don't react, which I call a shadow, where they've got this shadow behind them, a big heavy bag that they carry that no one else can see but them. And they're the ones that we need to, um, that need to, sorry, they need to take responsibility now and they need to reach out. Like a few things that really helped me in my healing besides I was lucky to be government, uh, reach a government scheme where I was able to get free treatment based on my situations. And the first thing that my shout out to Dr. Frederica in Coleroy said, I walked in there with a story ready to go and she said, what do you want? And I told her, she said, stop taking fluoxetine now. This is the last time you'll ever take it. That was the first thing. And the look on her face scared me. I was like, wow, okay, what don't I know? Secondly, I had a WhatsApp group, active. That was a check-in with Mick. What's he up to today? In the morning, at lunch, at night, where's his head at? And sometimes the conversations weren't great, but they were there and I was talking. Generally for me, when I was at its worst, it was when I was on the bus on the way home, on the way to work or kind of alone with my thoughts and the ones you can't control. And, you know, again, the ones I couldn't control. When all of this started to and also I, I started to be aware of my triggers, by the way. So there's a lot of triggers, a lot of triggers. And once I started to learn what what would trigger me, I would then avoid those triggers and I'd surround myself with things like I lived at the beach, so I ground myself in the sand. I would like put my feet in the grass. I would avoid doing things that would make me want to trigger, that would then turn into anxiety, that would turn into whatever, like mania, whatever it is. So there are different ways for different people, different strokes for different folks, but there is always a way and a language or a method that someone has done that has worked for someone like whoever's listening now going through it that they can do. Like there is no, there's nothing unsolvable. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. I'm glad you touched on that, Mick, because it, it really makes sense. Like for a guy, our pride is it's very, very, very hard to break it down. Because it's almost like it's it's within our our brains, within our hearts as well. But going back to being able to reach out, just just know that you're not alone. Just know that there are people out there that need, that we are here to help. Let go of the ego. Let Let it go. It's an attractive quality once you let it go. You don't have to tell people how much money you have and have the best jacket and you don't have to like not cry or not be sad. Like just do it. And guys look up what toxic masculinity is. You get a black belt in that boom, you'll shoot like a rocket into the sun and have success. And I am living an incredible life right now. I'm living where I want to be. I'm in control. I've got a flourishing business, hungry diner. I get to do all the things I love. I've got new friends. I've got, I've, I've met you, Jay. I've like, I, I know what to be careful of. I'm still a work in progress. I'm not perfect. But at the same time, I can now help others. I can be better brother, a better, better uncle, better sister, a better partner, better, better son. And from that alone, and I know when everyone was worried, I couldn't control it. But what I can control now is is all the things that I've learned and all the things I want to share. And that's why when we first were going to do this podcast on episode, that first time we tried, for some reason, the universe did not want that podcast to happen because we had to talk about this today. That's how I feel. Mm, that's good, man. I yeah, agree dude. with you on that. I'm, yeah. 100%. Crazy world. Tell me about it. (laughs) Crazy. Honestly, I want to do um, a few more questions for you, man. Give us if you did. I don't think I've asked you this one before, but what is, what is your biggest fear currently? Not embracing the weirdness in me, Mm -hmm. not embracing it. You're given one little spark of madness. 
you mustn't lose it and you must own it. A lot of people judge themselves for it. And it could be uh, it could be the way they think, the way they look, the way they speak. It could be comparison, right? Like if you've got find that spark of madness, and if you can really, really own it, you'll be fine. Like my biggest fear is that of of not owning my uniqueness, like not owning that. And um, my second fear is, uh, as I mentioned in the last one, is not the ability of not slowing down. I know that when I don't slow down and I do too much at once for too long a period of time, it has negative effects on my lifestyle. So quality of life, sorry, to be better. Uh, yeah, definitely, man. Yeah. What has been your, your greatest achievement in life? Oh, jeez. Like, to be completely sincere, like, I haven't done it yet. I haven't done it yet. Like I, I know there's something there. I don't, I want to say an answer that is great and that people will remember that like, I want to say I haven't done it yet, but it's coming. Mm. It's coming. Um, I think the fact that I'm still here today is definitely a milestone from what happens, but I believe it happened for a reason. So I just see that as a, as a, a speed hump. That was a really high level, tough one. If it was a video game, I went straight to the end level with the big bad boss and I had to face him. Um, but in terms of my greatest achievement, it's not there yet, buddy. It's, it's still to come. Hungry Diner, the business itself, will be the defining factor behind my greatest achievement. And you got yeah. the Hungry Diner show as well. So you're making an impact that way too. So you've yeah. got so much potential, man. And I think Thank you. Don't, don't ever get stuck with thinking that you've made it because no one will yeah. ever make it. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Agreed, agreed. Don't stop. So a few more questions for you if you don't mind. Yeah, buddy. And this is the legacy question. I don't think I asked you this the last time. Shit. Here we go. Uh, so you've reached the age of 100 and your friends have put together a mixtape of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. And they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that mixtape to say and to show about you? Oh, Jay, really? Yep. Oh. You know that movie Troy with Brad Pitt? Yes. <laughs> Right, and then they, they're like they're having a war at the start of the movie, and they're calling out the two greatest, um, the two greatest fighters, and one of them comes out, Boagrius, and he comes out with the spear, yeah. this big, big seven foot guy, and then he goes Achilles, Doesn't and he's not even there, and the kid goes to collect him, and um, the the kid says to him as he's getting on his horse, I wouldn't want to fight him, and then Achilles is like, that's why no one will remember your name. <laughs> That stuck with me. Like that's uh, Brad Pitt nails that. Um, look, I think for me, it's I, I, I in terms of legacy. Uh, for me, I'd like to have known that I started a family that made a difference in this world. So started a family and a tribe like I have now, and I'm very lucky to have where that tribe has values and they're doing things like I talked about at the start of the podcast. They're doing things. They're not taking shortcuts. They're serving others. They're not being selfless. They're not sabotaging themselves and others. I have, a, I've created a network with a family that I've created of mine. Um, I look at Italian family dynamics and that is really appealing to me in terms of legacy. I, that, that family will find ways to make this world a better place whether it's through literature, whether it's through um, medicine, whether it's just through um, being positive individuals, like whether it's through sport, like I don't care. But I feel like my legacy will be left with the family that I create. So that's, that's my answer. Like the, it would have been very, very different a few years ago and before that. And I don't want to write a best-selling book. I don't want to have the number one podcast. I just want to be consistent. I want to get better and being authentic and sincere. I want to like get better every day. And I just want to do my part in my local community, in men's mental health. I want to you know, grow my business. I want to help restaurants grow their revenue, especially now through what they're going through and just be just a good bloke and every now and then have a beer and a wine. That's me, mate. You are a great bloke. You've been a good friend to me. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for your time today. Again, I have to say, uh, round two, I think it was better than the first. I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah, uh, I agree. I, I honestly think it was, it was much better and we touched on some, some really good points here. 
So, so Mick, really appreciate you, man. So thank you so much for coming back on the story box and sharing your story. Likewise, mate. Lots of respect for you, man. Thank you, man. I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it'll go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.